glucose fluctuates quite a bit. That fasting glucose value could be totally different than it looked the day before. What is the root cause? And it really comes down to metabolic health. Like that is so intricately linked to the top killers. There's this idea of glucotoxicity. A glucose value in the bloodstream at a certain amount at any point in time can be damaging to our endothelial cells. And having that data helps speed up that experimentation. We can kind of find a plan much faster. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, the CGM episode is here. I know you guys have been dying for this episode. I get so many questions all the time. People wanting updates on my CGM progress, people wanting a discount, people wanting to know what is going on. Now it's here. I am so excited. I'm wearing mine right now. I think one of the things I'm most excited about is when a lot of you guys get one and start sharing your experiences in the Facebook group, it's going to be some pretty good conversation. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash NutriSense. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. And if you guys would like to get your own CGM, guys, I have an awesome discount for you. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash CGM. Use the coupon code melanieavalon, and that will get you 15% off any of their packages. The exception is the two-week trial, but anything more than that, 15% off. I feel like a lot of you guys are going to get addicted just like I am. The three-month would probably be a good place to start. Guess what NutriSense is doing, guys? I asked them if they would do this, and they were down, and I am just so excited. We're going to do a giveaway for CGM. Not making this up. Check out my Instagram. Go there now. Follow me. Check out the post about the CGM, and comment why you would like one to enter to win one. So exciting. And that's just one giveaway. I've got another giveaway for you. Because the holidays, and I love giving away things. Join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with the founder of NutriSense, Kara Collier. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It's about something that I have been personally experimenting with for the past month and a half or so. It's been so fascinating. I am learning so much about my health, about monitoring my diet, about how food and fasting and things like that affect me. I've been telling you guys about it. You've been dying to hear my official interview and thoughts on the topic. So that is what is happening right here, right now. Friends, I have been using a continuous glucose monitor and today I am here here with the founder of a company called NutriSense, which is really doing incredible things and making continuous glucose monitors actually accessible to the general public because we'll probably go into this in detail, but normally you would need a prescription and it's normally for people who have prediabetes, diabetes, things like that. So 
it is actually a very valuable tool. So I am so grateful for a wonderful woman named, and I just learned how to say her name correctly, Kara Collier for founding this amazing company called NutriSense. So Kara, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. I am. I have so many questions. And what's really great is, um, like I said, I have been using one for about a month and a half now. So I've seen what I can learn. And I've, I think I'm starting to see like what I have a lot of questions about, but for a little bit about Kara. So she is a registered dietitian nutritionist and also a certified nutrition support clinician. And she has a background in clinical nutrition, nutrition technology, and entrepreneurship. And I think it's really wonderful when those things come together because when you have all of those skills and assets, they can come together to create amazing things like this company because Kara herself became frustrated with the traditional healthcare system and started the company called NutriSense, where she is now the director of nutrition. She's a leading authority on the use of continuous glucose monitoring, which is called CGM technology, particularly in non-diabetics for the purposes of health optimization, disease prevention, and reversing metabolic dysfunction. So, Kara, I have so many questions for you, but to start things off, I did just tell a little bit about your bio, but I would love to hear in your own words, what what did that look like? What was your journey like that led you to where you are today with having this interest in, you know, monitoring blood glucose, CGMs, and forming the company NutriSense, which by the way, when did you guys start it officially? Yeah, we started taking customers, um, so launched to the public about 14 months ago. So a little over a year at this point. It's been an awesome journey so far. Were you in like a beta period for a while before that? Yeah, so about six months before that, where we're kind of building and testing, building and testing. Well, I just want to say congratulations. Like building a company like this is no small feat. So that's incredible. But yeah, so what led to that? Did you just wake up one day and with an obsession of monitoring blood glucose or what did that look like? The obsession has been there for quite a while now, but it really stemmed from my experiences working in the hospital system. So as you mentioned, I am a registered dietitian and I started my career working in hospitals, particularly ICU. So of course, this is where people are the sickest of the sick. And what I was seeing over and over was a lot of people coming into the ICU with complications of preventable conditions. So, you know, they're coming in because they need an amputation because of uncontrolled diabetes, or, you know, we need to put them on dialysis because of kidney failure. And a lot of this is related to diet and exercise and, you know, all the things we'll dive in today. And it was just very, very frustrating to see all that suffering, you know, unnecessary pain and time and expenses when I really felt like a lot of those people didn't need to be there. But in the current system of the, you know, traditional healthcare system, which does a lot of things really well, but it doesn't do prevention very well. I I felt like I couldn't make the difference I was looking for in that system. So instead of trying to fight that system, I decided to make my own, you know, system that can help address some of these problems. So from there, I really got to think like, what is the root cause with all of this, 
all these conditions we're seeing. And, and it really comes down to metabolic health and insulin resistance. Like that is so intricately linked to the top killers in the United States and globally, you know, not just diabetes, but cardiovascular disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, all of these conditions can be linked back to our metabolic health. So in the goal of kind of, you know, the 80-20 rule, biggest bang for your buck, really, I started to dive into glucose management as a metric we can focus on to make a big, meaningful impact. And I wanted to do that in this population that's not already, you know, multiple chronic conditions so we can prevent them from getting there. So that's really where it all started. And my interest is just seeing how it really works and how those last, you know, 10, 20 years of somebody's life can be full of pain and suffering when really we want that to maximize health span and, and you be able to enjoy your older age and not have all these medications you're on and procedures and complications. So that's the ultimate goal here for me. I love this so much. Yeah, I recently, actually, the last interview I did was with Dr. Benjamin Bickman, who wrote a new book all about insulin resistance. And it's just really mind blowing. And I love what you said about with prevention and, you know, what is one marker that we can look at pretty consistently that speaks to everything in a way. And I, at the beginning, I know, I, I know I'm saying blood glucose, but CGMs don't actually measure blood glucose. So maybe that's something that we can go into. So actually, yeah, starting with there with the actual, the CGM so that listeners can actually know, you know, what this device is. You just answered a question that we, I got a lot of questions about, like Catherine said, why should I use one if I'm not diabetic? But to that point, historically, what are CGMs? When did they start being used and why do they pretty much require a prescription? How can they be made available now? What are they doing and how are they different from blood glucose specifically? Yeah. So a continuous glucose monitor or CGM is a small device that essentially you can put on at home and it goes on the back of your arm for the most part. Different brands have them where you can place them in different places. But essentially it's a way to attach this device to your body so you can get 24-7 glucose readings Whereas if you have a glucometer at home and you're, you're pricking your finger, that's just a snapshot in time. So instead, a CGM is sort of like a movie of what's going on inside. And it is considered a medical device. So it does require a prescription from a physician. And, you know, I believe this is an unfortunate thing. And this is specific in the USA. So in other countries, you know, in Europe, in Canada, in Australia, you can get these devices over the counter. You don't need a prescription. Oh, really? Yeah. In the U.S., the FDA has the legal authority to regulate both drugs and also medical devices. So essentially they get to decide what's a medical device and what's not. So that's really what it comes down to is FDA said these CGMs are medical devices. So they regulate them and they say it needs to have a prescription where something like a glucometer that you're actually drawing some blood from your finger is not a medical device according to the FDA. So you can buy it over the counter. 
So that's, that's really what it comes down to, which is unfortunate because it limits so many people from this very valuable data. So what we're doing is we're trying to allow this to be easily accessible to as many people as possible. Historically, these devices were really only used for insulin-dependent diabetics. So type 1 diabetes is where you don't produce insulin that's the main market for CGMs. Type 2, that's more the lifestyle-controlled or lifestyle-caused diabetes. Really, only about a third of type 2s are even wearing CGMs. So not even all diabetics are wearing them. But these devices have been around for about 20 years, and they've come a long way since then. So we really anticipate they're just going to keep getting better and better. When they first came out, they only lasted three days. And now the sensor we use, the Abbott Freestyle Libre, it lasts 14 days. So essentially you put this thing on in the back of your arm. And for those who are worried and asking, because I get this question a lot, it does not hurt. You can put it on at home. You don't need like your, your physician or anybody else to put it on for you. And I always describe it as like an easy button. Like it comes in this applicator and you push it to the back of your arm and just push the easy button and then it's in your arm. And it's just this little disc. You can shower with it, work out with it, do your normal activities. And if you're ever curious about your glucose values, you just have to scan your phone over the device and then you can see an updated view of your glucose. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how it works and how it's regulated in the U.S. Yeah, I will speak to putting it on. So it's funny because I like I'm a quote biohacker. I feel like I am often injecting and sticking myself with like things all the time, like glutathione and, you know, blood pricks. And I'm not scared of it at all. But when I got the first because like you said, it, it lasts for two weeks. So when I got my first sensor, the applicator looks intimidating because you can see the the needle that it uses to put it on. Friends, you don't feel it at all. Like, I don't know. It, it, it's almost shocking. And I've done it three times now. Like you said, it is like an easy button. I put it on and I was like, wait, I, what? <laughs> like you don't even feel it. Yeah. It's like completely painless. Yeah. Yeah. So some questions about how it actually works. Well, I love what you said about the movie metaphor, because I think the biggest like epiphany that I've had about all of this is just like, if we go get our labs drawn and we see our you know, our blood glucose at that moment. Like if I had gone in five minutes later or maybe jumped or coughed or thought about something, like it's crazy how much, you know, it can vary. And maybe this probably varies by person as well. Like I'm sure maybe some people's varies more than others, but I've just realized, wow, like one marker at this one time with like a blood jar or a prick or a blood glucose monitor is so different from seeing it, how it changes 24 seven. So listeners, I mean, it's mind blowing, honestly. So as far as how it actually works, so it's not measuring your actual blood, right? Yes, that is right. So it is where like, you know, the glucometer that your audience may be familiar with where you're pricking your finger, you're drawing blood and it's measuring your glucose values in your blood. Whereas a CGM, because this is part of what makes it so painless is it's inserted just barely below the skin. And so it has this little flexible microfilament that's measuring glucose values in your interstitial fluid, which is just the fluid between cells. So it's not even going to the depth of blood. And that's why you don't feel it and it's super painless. And so this is a little bit different than your blood glucose values, but it is still essentially like glucose in your body. It's just in a different compartment. 
So if we think about like, let's say I just ate a candy bar, glucose molecules from the candy are going to get broken down into my bloodstream first, and then it's going to diffuse into my interstitial fluid. So eventually that glucose ends up there and regulates, but it's a slightly different area to measure, if that makes sense. So the blood glucose in your blood, and then there's your cells and there's this fluid around the cells. So does the blood glucose always have to go through the fluid and then it enters the cell, like the potential pathway of blood glucose is like the interstitial fluid, like a passive ocean around the cell that the blood glucose passes through. Yes. So it is like passive diffusion. So eventually it will end up there, but that's why if you're measuring like the glucose level in the blood in your finger and your interstitial fluid in your arm, they're never going to be like perfect matches. We call them unicorns if they perfectly match. Cause it's just like, you're not measuring it from the same area. Just like if you took a finger prick from the blood value in like your hip versus your finger, they're not going to perfectly match either because you're just drawing it from different areas. Areas, whereas the CGM is measuring that interstitial fluid and it does have a little bit of a lag time. So your glucose might spike more in your bloodstream like 15 minutes after eating and it might show up in the interstitial fluid 30 minutes after eating because there's a little bit of a lag time due to that diffusion. When they say to put it on, they recommend putting it on a fatty area. Like wouldn't you want to put it on a less fatty area because it would be closer to the like the bloodstream? Yeah, that's a good question. We have kind of tested this. And since the devices are originally made for or their target audience is a type one diabetic, which are often children, what they have noticed, just the the manufacturers of the devices, is that with children who are really lean, they don't have a lot of fats, they tend to have more inaccuracies with the data. And so it seems that if it's not, so that fat really helps it to be bathed in that interstitial fluid. I guess there's more there, you know, I should probably dive into the nuances of that, but I do know that accuracy tends to be better if we put it in that fatty area, because that's where it's been tested for. That's a good question. So some people who are more lean, we tend to have to calibrate it a bit more and we can dive into accuracy if you want to, because that's a common question I know comes up with the CGM devices, but the placement plays a role in that as well. Okay. Yeah. That is so interesting because often they'll talk about like circulation to fat stores and things like that. So I was just like pondering it actually. So yeah, since we are talking about the accuracy, what does affect the accuracy? And so I've done three three freestyle Libres now, and I have been checking them against my own blood glucose. I'm sorry. Everything's running together in my head. Blood glucose monitor. (laughs) Yeah. And so the first one seemed to be, it was usually high by about 10 points, 10 to 15 points. The second one I ran talking about unicorns, I made it pretty much would match up. Like it it seemed like a unicorn. The one I put on a few days ago, it actually seems to be high by about 20 to 30. So in those situations, is the device going to be accurate for the relative changes and then you can calibrate it to the correct number or like what's going on there? And like, how can we like perfect accuracy to the best that we can 
That's exactly right. So the sensors, and this is kind of across the board. So there's three main companies that make these. There's Abbott, who makes the Freestyle Libre that we use. There's Dexcom. And then there's a brand called Medtronic. And for all of these CGM devices, they do have fluctuations in the absolute accuracy, meaning that the the number value itself could be a little bit higher or lower than true value, but the precision tends to be spot on. So those changes in glucose, the trends, the shifts in your values, that is very precise. So because they're FDA regulated, FDA tests all these brands and has declared that they're accurate enough that those who need insulin dosing are able to dose off of these devices. So that precision, the change in glucose is shown to be very precise. So the absolute value, like you said, like what we like to do And the app that comes with the Freestyle Libre does not allow you to calibrate yourself. So if it's off, you can't do anything about it, which is obviously frustrating. If you can see it's off, you want to be able to adjust the values. But the app that comes with the Libre does not allow you to do that. So in our app, we do allow you to manually calibrate. So typically, we recommend to do it in a fasted state just because of the difference, the lag time between blood glucose values and interstitial values. It's easier to match it up in that fasted state. So if you check on your glucometer in the morning after you wake up and move around and it's reading 75 and then your CGM reading at that same exact time is 85, you can adjust that in the app to calibrate it, you know, 10 points, and then it'll adjust it for the whole sensor and you don't have to check it anymore. So we typically recommend like adjusting it once and then kind of letting the trend speak for itself from there, if that makes sense. Some more specifics to that. So because you said the precision is accurate, I know you said like the fastest state would be the best time, but would a person want to maybe wear it a certain amount of time, check it a certain amount of times and notice that it seems to be off before making that calibration change? Or is it fine to just calibrate like at any time? Yeah, the the sensor is self-calibrating during the first 12 to 24 hours. So when you first put it on, it's kind of doing its internal calibration to try to get it as close as possible to true values. And so we usually recommend if you have a glucometer at home, if you have something to double check, doing it on that second day in the morning when you're fasted to see how it compares. And that's the best time to kind of make an adjustment. And then from there, you're usually good to go. You know, I don't want people to necessarily have to prick their finger over and over. It should be adjusted for the whole 14 days if you just do it that one time. Of course, you could, you know, continue to spot checking and get it as close as possible. But the glucometers themselves have a little bit of variability. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes, you know, I'll take a value on one finger versus the other finger and they're different. So those devices aren't perfect. So the calibration and making the adjustments is to try to get an approximation and get it as close as possible. And then we really want to focus on the trends and that the CGM is providing us because that's where, you know, infinite insights lie of. You can see, was my fasting glucose value yesterday higher or lower than today when I, you know, made XYZ adjustment? How much did my glucose rise or fall after a meal? Like all of those trends and shifts in glucose are what we really want to glean the insights from. Yeah, this is so helpful. And the reason I wanted to really like talk about it was I want to make sure people when they get their sensors that they do get it, you know, calibrated up to their body because we would not want to have the, you know, like a person 
making maybe unnecessary changes or drawing, you know, conclusions when it really is just calibrating the device would get them on the right path. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why we, we like to mention it because everybody gets a dietitian when they start with us. And we like to mention it at our first contact. Just so just in case, you know, maybe that's part of what's going on. I would say 50 to 70% of people don't have to adjust the sensor at all because it's like within five or so points are pretty close. But we want to make sure that you're at least aware of that. So that, yeah, we're not making, you know, incorrect conclusions about your data. And, And that's why it's important to have real people there as well. So we can kind of talk through that if anyone's confused. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So like I said, I think the first one probably was fine. It was a little bit off, but it was fine. Second one was spot on. This one I'm definitely going to calibrate right after we, because uh, I'm fasted right now. So the, so the actual, what we're monitoring. So the blood glucose levels got a ton of questions about that. I have a lot of questions. Becky, for example, says, what is a good range to be in? What numbers should we be looking for? What is the normal quote, good blood glucose levels? And do you agree that the conventional standards are what we should be aiming for? Just to give a a terminology and a language to to all of this, what, what are those ranges? Yeah. And so I can kind of walk through what's normal in traditional settings and then what we consider optimal from our view of really looking at the lens of prevention and longevity and and not just normal. So if you were to just go to your doctor's office and you were going to check and see how your glucose values looked, you would probably get two metrics. One would be a fasting glucose value, and that's kind of on your standard panel. And then the other would be a hemoglobin A1C. So with the fasted glucose value, it's exactly what it sounds like. You know, it's your glucose in a fasted state. And when it's just on the regular lab panel there, of course, it's just a snapshot in time. And as you noted, when you wear a CGM, you realize that your glucose fluctuates quite a bit. You know, one day of bad sleep or some stress, or maybe you've got some adrenaline going on because you're under pressure or something. And that fasted glucose value could be totally different than it looked the day before. So the unfortunate thing about just getting it from a lab is that you're only seeing that small snapshot in time. And the lab is going to tell you if your fasted glucose value is under 100, that that's perfectly healthy, where we're really shooting for a fasting glucose value between 70 and 90. And that buffer zone of 90 to 100 would be, you know, a little bit of a yellow flag, raise an eyebrow, because there is a lot of research that shows fasting glucose values above 90 are an independent risk factor for, you know, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, anything related to insulin resistance, we start to see that risk increase in those higher fasting glucose values. So with that metric, we're really looking for 70 to 90. The nuance that some people who are on a more strict ketogenic diet, they might have a fasting glucose value below 70 and feel perfectly fine. And and that's okay too. We're really making sure that you don't have symptoms of hypoglycemia and then it's okay. So that's fasting glucose. What is qualified? Because when the audience is a lot of intermittent fasters, I think the definition of fasting can be. So what is considered a fasting glucose? How many hours after eating? Yeah, and that's a good question. So technically, again, if you're going to a lab, they're going to say you need to be fasted for at least eight hours for that to be considered a fasting glucose value. But if you kind of if you think about physiology, we tend in a healthy 
system. So not somebody who's showing metabolic dysfunction or insulin resistance. We start to see people shift from that post-absorptive state where, you know, you're you're metabolizing food, you're stimulating all these different pathways, you tend to shift to more of the fasting pathways at about three to five hours after eating. So for me, like if you ate and then went to sleep and we're looking at your overnight glucose values, I'm kind of looking at more like starting at three to five hours after eating, depending on how big that meal was. You know, if you ate 2000 calories, it's going to take a little bit longer to be in more of a fasted state than if you ate 40 calories or something. So technically eight hours, but I'm, I'm looking a little more lenient at that. Lenient meaning it's dependent on sort of what you ate before. Yeah. So it's, it's not just that I want to see glucose values around 98 hours after eating. I also kind of want to see it closer to, you know, three to five hours after eating, depending on what the meal looked like and what the situation is essentially. Okay. Gotcha. And then after eating. And I guess this would probably depend massively on what you're eating and your, I'm assuming your insulin sensitivity, things like that. So after eating, what is a quote, normal blood glucose response? And I'm personally haunted by, fascinated by the concept of area under the curve. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Is there a difference or a benefit or a detriment to higher spikes that go down quicker so that there's less quote area under the curve compared to lower spikes that might actually stay raised a little bit longer. So there's a larger area under the curve. So yeah. So what is a normal healthy response to a meal and what is this whole area under the curve business? Yeah. And this is where I think wearing a CGM is just so insightful because you really cannot get this information with any other metric. If you're wearing, you're using a glucometer, you can check your glucose value like an hour or two after eating. But that's, again, you, you might miss the whole curve. You might miss the nuances of what that postprandial response looks like. So you really can only see this with a CGM. And there's a lot of things we want to look at at a meal. So the first thing we want to look at is how high does your glucose value go? What is the absolute peak? Interestingly, again, going back to the idea of traditional medicine versus optimal health, nobody, you know, World Health Organization, American Diabetes Association, they do not recognize peak glucose value as something of significance. They're looking at the postprandial state, just what your glucose is at the two hour mark after eating. So that's the only thing they're looking at. And they're saying if two hours after eating, you're 140 or less, then that's okay. We do not go by those rules because we think there's a lot of convincing research to say otherwise. So with that peak glucose value, we want to stay below 140 most of the time. So when we spike above 140, research shows that we start to see, and this is again, this is about repetition. So if you have one spike to 140 every once in a while, that is no big deal. You know, our bodies have systems in place to take care of that. What we don't want to see is you hitting 140 every single day from your standard, you know, meal that you eat every day. Then that's when we need to do some tweaking. We don't want to see repeated exposure above 140 because that can impair beta cell function that can decrease our insulin sensitivity over time. And there's this idea of glucotoxicity. So 
a glucose value in the bloodstream at a certain amount at any point in time can be damaging to our endothelial cells. So these spikes are actually independent risk factors for cardiovascular disease, which is again why monitoring glucose is so important, not just to prevent diabetes, but for all these other health conditions that, you know, so many people are affected by. When you have that spike, it damages the endothelial cells of your blood vessels, and then that causes an inflammatory reaction. So essentially, the body needs to send out some inflammatory cytokines to kind of clean up the damage. It releases some oxidative stress, and this can cause atherosclerosis because of the damage to the blood vessels and this inflammatory process that's required to heal it. So that's when repeated abuse. So repeated exposure above 140 is when we get stuck in this feedback loop where that short-term damage can't be corrected because we're doing damage again before we're able to completely recover. So that's a long-winded answer about maximum glucose value, why we want to stay below 140 most of the time. With that being said, it is very common. Like, let's say you you eat a huge carb-heavy meal, like maybe you drink a large soda. Your glucose is probably going to go above 140, and that doesn't mean you're insulin resistant. It just means that you had a lot of sugar that you just consumed. Whereas if you have a large soda and you go above 180, that's when we start to have a red flag moment for potential insulin resistance. So Above 180 is when that is an abnormal response where glucose is getting higher than it should in a healthy metabolic system, even to a high sugar load. So we really want to stay below 180 all the time. We don't want to see it get hit that value. That's when maybe we need some work to be done on insulin sensitivity. But then we want to stay below 140 most of the time for optimal health outcomes and preventative health. So that's one metric of the postprandial response. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. 
but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. No, I love this. This is so fascinating. Okay. Can I make up a hypothetical situation? I'm just trying to understand this. So it sounds sort of like the difference between like acute intense stressor that could potentially damage you with like with the spikes compared to like a chronic stress if it's high, but not too high, but for a longer period of time. So say if you, not that a person randomly can pick this, but say that there was two situations, like one person who goes up to like 140 or maybe a little bit above, but then goes down pretty quickly. So like 140 and then they're back to baseline, but let's say two hours later compared to a person that only goes up to like 120, but they stay there for like five hours, you know, like between those two situations is one preferred. Yeah. And, and there may not be a right answer to this question, but based off of my clinical experience and, and, research I have read, I would prefer to see the person who spikes high, but comes down quickly rather than the person with this prolonged glucose response. I would find that more detrimental in the long term. Okay. I've been really fascinated by that, this question for like for a very long time. And I'm sure, like you said, there's not really one right answer, but it's definitely really interesting to think about. Yeah. Cause especially what about people who seem to experience on low carb diets, a sort of physiological insulin resistance. It might not be that. I know there's a lot of terminology that people throw around. Some people call it glucose sparing. I think Paul Saladino calls it glucose sparing. Dr. Bickman was calling it glucose. He had another word for it. But basically this idea of people on lower carb diets who seem to experience higher fasting blood sugars, not like crazy high, but maybe like, you know, 100s, 110. What do you think is going on there? Yeah. And this is something we see quite a bit where the reason people are coming to us is they're like, you know, I've been doing a ketogenic diet for five years and my fasting glucose values five years ago were 75 and then they were 85 and 95. And now they're 115, which is, you know, pre-diabetic, diabetic levels. And they're like, well, what the heck is going on? I haven't changed anything else. So I see this a lot. And is this idea of yeah, physiological insulin resistance, adaptive glucose sparing, whatever you want to call it. But essentially, if you think about it, the body is super adaptable. If you are never giving it glucose, carbohydrates from the outside source, you're never eating food that has glucose in it, it's going to start adjusting its internal system. So what's happening is that over time, fasting insulin is going to lower because it's not needing insulin as much because you're not ever giving it carbs. And then peripheral insulin sensitivity decreases as well because you're not needing to use it. And then the body is raising its endogenous glucose production. So we're making more glucose from the liver via gluconeogenesis because we do have glucose sensitive organs like the brain that need a constant and steady flow of glucose. So if you think about it just from an adaptability standpoint, the body's like, well, I need to make sure I always have glucose coming in and you're not giving it to me from food. So I'm going to make sure I'm always, you know, producing a little bit extra because I'm, I'm not getting it from the outside source. And so what happens is that fasting glucose raises 
And so the first thing I want to check in this situation is what are your insulin levels? And somebody who has pathological insulin resistance, so this is what's associated with diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And this is where all the research associated with elevated fasting glucose values, these people have elevated insulin levels as well because they have pathological insulin resistance. So if you're someone coming to me, long-term keto, glucose is rising, let's check your fasting insulin. If your fasting insulin is 2 or 1.5 because it's been lowering over time and your fasting glucose is 115, it's much less concerning than the person who has a fasting glucose of 115 and a fasting insulin of 20 or 30 or 100. Because that shows me that your body's pumping out insulin, but not responding to it. Whereas in a long-term ketogenic person, you're no longer pumping out as much insulin. So your body's increasing glucose on its own. Does that make sense? Yes. I love this conversation so much. My obsession is I don't know why I'm obsessed with gluconeogenesis, but I actually did just get my fasted insulin tested for the first time because I was feeling, I don't know, I was feeling intuitively like I was building up this sort of psychological insulin resistance that we're talking about having done a lot of low carb and things like that. And it was really inspiring because I went to see my endocrinologist and she suggested it. She was like, we could test your fasting insulin. And I was like, yes, that's awesome. You have a good endocrinologist. Yeah, I know. I was like, this is the best moment ever. I was happy to see, cause I, like I said, was researching insulin and it seems that below, I don't know what your optimal level would be, but I read that below six was pretty good for fasting insulin and mine, mine was 4.5. So that totally makes sense. So for listeners, you know, if you have these high blood sugar levels in your bloodstream while you're fasted or while you're doing low carb, if there's a lot of insulin, clearly the insulin's not doing its job because the blood sugar is still there. But if the insulin is low and your blood sugar is high, there's not insulin present to be lowering it. Exactly. Then it's more of, you know, a natural adaptation. So one caveat I will say is that there's another reason that glucose, especially in the fasted state could rise and your insulin is also low. And that would be if for whatever reason you have a lot of cortisol pumping out. So maybe you're just somebody who doesn't sleep very much, or you're somebody who's under a lot of like chronic psychological stress, or you actually, you know, have some sort of cortisol issue that cortisol basically is, you know, our stress hormone, it's our fight or flight stimulation. And so this hormone, if we're excreting more amounts than normal, it's telling the liver to make more glucose as well. So that's also stimulating gluconeogenesis because your body thinks it's under stress. It thinks it needs extra energy to, you know, fight off a lion or run for your life. And so your body's pumping out more glucose and it's actually decreasing cellular insulin sensitivity so that that glucose stays in circulation because that's, you know, how we have evolved to function. And of course, in our modern environment, this is a bit of a mismatch. This is an unfortunate situation where we have a lot of stressors in our modern environment and our body is responding in this way that's not actually beneficial anymore. So that's something else. If if you see your fasting glucose rise, your insulin's in a good level, do a little check, you know, and try to assess am I stressed? Am I getting out in nature? Am I seeing sunlight? You know, am I taking time for self-care? Am I sleeping enough, both deep sleep and sleep 
quantity. So do those kind of questions as well. And if, if you feel like you're in a good place there, then it might just be this natural adaptation. And then, of, of course, the question everybody asks with physiological insulin resistance, you know, we've, we've checked the box that insulin's good. We've checked the box that you're not overstressed. Then the question is, well, is this a bad thing? You know, should I be worried about it? And this is a question mark in the research. If anybody says confidently, yes, it's a bad thing or no, it's not a bad thing, they're lying because we don't know. But I'm going to make the guess that it's probably fine. It's probably a natural adaptation. It's not dangerous in the way that high glucose and high insulin is. But it has a few implications. One is if if you're somebody who then wants to have a big load of carbohydrates every once in a while, you know, maybe on the weekend you want to be able to eat whatever, you're going to have a much higher glucose response than somebody who regularly consumes carbohydrates. This is due to that peripheral insulin resistance. It's temporary, but in those moments, you might have glucose excursions that are way, way higher than somebody who doesn't have physiological insulin resistance. So if you want that flexibility to sometimes have carbs and sometimes not, then you might want to work on kind of reversing the physiological insulin resistance. So this is the idea of kind of like metabolic flexibility, like you, you're flexible to both utilize glucose as a fuel and fat as a fuel. If you're somebody who you're like, I love being keto, you know, carbs don't tempt me. I don't want to have a big carb meal every once in a while, then it's probably not a big deal at all. I don't really see a problem with that rising glucose if everything else is in good place. Just to clarify, I know this is your opinion and just so nobody has to hold you to it, but like not seeing a problem with it, it's, that would be fasted blood sugar levels of approximately what during this situation? Yeah, I've never seen it go much higher than that, like 115. So, and that's people who have usually been a very strict ketogenic diet for at least like five years. So this is kind of this long-term adaptation. I've never seen it rise above that. So if I did see somebody who was significantly higher than that, that would raise an eyebrow as well as just being outside of the pattern of what I've seen. But for the people where it's hitting those upper threshold of 110, 115, but we've checked all the other boxes and they want to stay strict keto forever. I'm okay with that for the most part, you know. Have they done testing on at what blood glucose level glycation is more likely to occur in the bloodstream? Is it like past that 115-ish, 120? Yeah. And, and that's a really good question because our research is not great on this. And, and this is something where this is the big link between longevity and glucose is this glycation. So, you know, I'm sure your audience is familiar with advanced glycation end products dubbed as age, which is very appropriate. And this is essentially like if you, if you have too much glucose in the bloodstream, you're caramelizing proteins. So this is like, you know, hemoglobin, that's hemoglobin A1C. If it has too much sugar on it, you're essentially glycating it. And that's why you might have a hemoglobin A1C of 10%. That's a problem as opposed to something of 5% is normal amount of glycation on a hemoglobin molecule. But when we caramelize these proteins too much, they damage the cellular functions and limit things like DNA repair and structural integrity. And this can speed up our epigenetic clock. And that's one of the proposed mechanisms of the link between longevity and glucose control. But a lot of these studies are, they're relatively high glucose values where we're seeing this glycation. So that's another thing where I'd also want to see, you know, in somebody who 
has this physiological insulin resistance and it's really getting up there, I'd want to see that your average glucose is at least, you know, around 110 or lower. So a lot of people with physiological insulin resistance, their, their overnight glucose values will be the highest of the 24 hour cycle. So while they're sleeping, it's that 110, 115. And then when they wake up and start moving around, exercising, walking, it's dropping down usually to the 80s, 90s. So average glucose value overall is closer to about 100, which is very healthy and normal. But if you're never dropping down and your average is exceeding 110, that's when I would start to get a little bit concerned that maybe you just have a too much circulating glucose in your system at all times that could then really stimulate this glycation of all these different proteins. Yeah. And I also wonder if there's a, like the context of high glucose, higher glucose in a fasted state, which presumably would probably have a lot of anti-inflammatory signals going on with that compared to like that exact same blood glucose level in a fed state which probably looks very different as far as like sirtuins and all of that. So I I wonder, you know, as far as like the glycation potential, if that does provide a little bit of a safety net, I don't know. (laughs) And that's a good point. And if, and if I have a customer who's like, my ultimate goal is longevity and prevention, and I want to be just the absolute healthiest I can be, then for that person, if I'm seeing this going on, I would say, let's try to kind of correct the physiological insulin resistance. So it's, it's really meeting them where their goal is. If it's somebody else who they're like, I just want, eating to be simple and it's simple with keto and I feel good. My energy is awesome. And I don't want to change that. Then it's like, well, it might not be worth it because it's just so unknown. If it's me personally, I don't want to see the physiological insulin resistance because I really want to be metabolically flexible and be able to use both fuels. I want, I don't want to feel like I can't eat carbs ever. So that's just my personal preference is I want that freedom with my macros. So a question about the the communication pathway that's going on in the body, like when this is occurring, because I'm assuming we've got the the bloodstream with the blood glucose. We've got the liver potentially creating the glucose from with gluconeogenesis, the brain, the pancreas, which can put out insulin. Like how do they all talk to each other? Like, is everything looking at the bloodstream and reacting to that? Is the brain telling everybody what to do? Like, what does that communication pathway look like? So like if a person's blood sugar goes low, did the liver directly sense that and releases glucose in a fasted state or does the brain sense it and tell the liver? (laughs) It's typically the brain sensing these things and then sending out signals via hormones. So that's where, you know, hormones are really, really important because they can connect all the different organs to do the things they need to do and they can be the messengers. And the brain is typically sending these messages. So in the instance of your glucose is starting to dip low, your brain recognizes that and it stimulates glucagon, which is kind of the opposing hormone to insulin. And glucagon stimulates pathways to raise your glucose values to an appropriate level. So we're always kind of in this like yin yang between insulin and glucagon and kind of finding that perfect balance. Your body is always looking for a perfect homeostasis with glucose. And that's where I also find glucose to be such an interesting metric to monitor because it's kind of like a vital sign in that, you know, your heart rate is always being always fluctuating a little bit and your body's constantly trying to keep it in this certain range, depending on what's going on. It's the same with glucose. You know, your body's constantly trying to raise it if you need 
to fuel and exercise or lower it if you're pumping out too much or if you just ate a bunch of carbohydrates or something. So it's always adjusting to what you're eating, your fasting, your stress, your sleep, your exercise. And it should be fluctuating, kind of fine tuning. There's there's actually really interesting research to show that a healthy metabolic system is constantly fluctuating all day, like, you know, up and down five to 10 points. So you go from 100 to 95 to 105, like kind of all day where an unhealthy metabolism, unhealthy glucose system is kind of flatlined. So it's like a gradual rise or gradual fall, but you don't see these little nuanced fluctuations. Those little nuanced fluctuations are showing that your body is constantly adjusting and fine tuning really precisely depending on, you know, what's going on in the system and which hormones need to be pulled on more than others. That's really reassuring to hear. <laughs> That's good. So, so like you were speaking about with the, the physiological insulin resistant. So if there is a person who is not the type that wants to be keto their whole life and actually does want to eat carbs practically, how might it look like that they could address that? Because Gabriella, for example, she said, how can one get down the blood glucose levels to physiological insulin resistance? What is the appropriate blood glucose baseline to avoid getting into physiological insulin resistance? What strategies to avoid this if you still want to eat low carb? Should you eat carbs at every meal or occasionally spike insulin with good carbs one or two days a week? And one of the amazing things about, and we can dive into this a little bit more, the amazing things about the NutriSense app is you actually can work with health coaches who can coach you through and like help you out with tackling the levels that you're seeing. So what might that look like for somebody who is low carb, but they do want to eat carbs? What type of things might they experiment with while wearing their CGM and working with their NutriSense app? Yeah. So if you are showing these signs of physiological insulin resistance and you're really wanting to be more metabolically flexible to both carbs and fat, there's a few different tactics we can try. The first one is something where it's maybe more of like a cyclical keto. You're adding in some carbohydrates at targeted times. And this is for somebody who maybe they, they want to sometimes be in ketosis and sometimes not. So again, it's really hard to generalize an exact amount of carbohydrates and when that would be best to consume because I, you know, I really can't emphasize enough how different we all are. And that's exactly why I think this data is so important because everybody responds a little bit differently and it takes a little bit of experimentation and trial and error. And having that data helps speed up that experimentation process. You can see right away, that's not working. This is working. And you can kind of find a plan much faster than if you didn't have any data to kind of reinforce your experimentation. But for many people, it can be just titrating carbs up just a little bit and it can make a difference. So we usually start small and kind of work our way up. So let's say right now, you know, you're eating 20 grams of net carbs a day. We can try 40 grams net carbs and time that carbohydrate after an exercise or after a walk, you know, kind of timing it with movement to help avoid a big spike as you start to acclimate to carbohydrates again. But that might just be enough, you know, 20 extra grams might be enough to stimulate your body. I'm getting glucose from outside. I don't have to make this adaptation anymore. So that's one of the first things we'll try is, is just kind of titrating carbs up, timing it around exercise and see how those overnight values change. Another thing we like to really emphasize is making sure you're doing some strength training and making sure you're physically active because in general, the more lean muscle mass you have, 
the lower your fasting glucose are going to be and the more enhanced glucose tolerance you have. So I do have a handful of people I can think of that are like my bodybuilder types. And, you know, I have several examples of people who've been doing ketogenic diet for five plus years and they're very strong. They have a lot of muscle mass and their fasting glucose is 70 or 80. You know, they never, ever saw this adaptation occur. And it's always with people who have more lean muscle mass. I think it's just because your, your muscles are such a huge sink for glucose. They, they want to utilize glucose. That's where our glycogen is stored. It's, you know, the liver and the skeletal muscles and your liver can only get so big. We don't want it to get bigger than it's supposed to be. And so if you have more glucose storage space in your muscles, that's going to help with glucose tolerance and getting glucose out of the bloodstream. So using those muscles, building those muscles up is really helpful for this as well. The third tactic, you know, typically it's really focusing on adding in some carbohydrates, focusing on muscle mass, and then also fasting. So really making sure that that's dialed in because that can help your body learn to tap into these endogenous glucose stores and kind of figure things out. So a lot of this is just kind of playing with their eating window. And again, everyone is different of when the optimal time to eat is, but we can tweak that. And I've seen that alone also help bring down those fasting glucose values. I'm so excited that you have so much experience with seeing so many people trying different diets and what it does to their levels. What have you seen? Because I've had on the show Cyrus and Robbie who wrote Mastering Diabetes. I've had Dr. Doug Graham of 801010. What have you seen with clients or patients on high carb, low fat diets that actually are low fat <laughs> and their their levels? Have you seen trends with that? Have you seen that to be beneficial for some people in taking charge of their insulin? Yeah, I have seen many people try this. And that is part of the beauty of, of this. This is kind of when we first started, it was like the wild west of trying to figure out what's normal versus abnormal of glucose data and non-diabetics. But now that we've seen thousands of people, we have, you know, these unique insights. But we have seen people do the very, very low fat, high carb. So Robbie and Cyrus, you know, if, if anyone's familiar with their plan, we have had people try that and it is very interesting. So essentially, you know, what they are trying to prove is that if you eat a lot of carbohydrates, you're going to increase your insulin sensitivity. And that is certainly true. So if we think about glucose tolerance and insulin resistance, there's two sides to the coin. There's how much insulin you're putting out. And then there's how sensitive are your cells to the signal from insulin. And that's a thing where the physiological insulin resistance, if you're never giving your body carbohydrates, we decrease our insulin sensitivity at a cellular level because we don't need it as much. And so that's physiological insulin resistance, where if you're giving your body a lot of carbs all the time, your cells become really insulin sensitive because it knows it needs to really pull on that pathway because it's having to use it a lot. But the problem I have with a long-term, really, really low-fat, really, really high-carb diet is that there's the other side of the coin, which is how much insulin you're stimulating. 
And insulin is, is stimulated for a lot of different reasons, but the primary stimulation of insulin is because glucose is rising. And so if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates at you know multiple meals in the day, you're putting out a lot of insulin. And I do worry about, especially in somebody who already has insulin resistance, which is what this is sometimes applied to, of the fact that you're you're just putting the body in such an insulin state of constantly pumping out insulin, even if your cells are sensitive to that effect now or more sensitive than they might be on a higher fat diet. I'm worried about how much insulin you are producing with such a high carb diet. That's, I guess, my hesitation with that. I have not seen it work that well, but here is the thing. Like, it's crazy how personalized everyone is though. There's absolutely a no one size fits all. I would say in my, my people that are showing signs of insulin resistance, which in the general population is 80 to 90% of the population has some form of metabolic dysfunction. They tend to do best on the lower carb diet. And this doesn't mean it has to be zero carb. This doesn't mean it has to be keto, but they tend to do better on a lower carb diet. But then there's this subset of the population that just doesn't, and they do better on a lower fat, higher carb diet. So I would say as a general rule of thumb, I see much more success with the lower carb, but there's always people who don't do as well. And there's, you know, that really famous study where it was like a, one of the best designed diet studies where it's 12 months long and it was high carb versus high fat. And essentially what it showed is that overall, you know, there wasn't a lot of significant differences, but that there was a ton of inter-individuality. So essentially, you know, what that says to me is there's this group of people who responds really well to one, and then there's a subset of that that doesn't. And you really have to figure out and experiment what one is going to work best for you, because it's not as simple as, you know, everyone needs to follow keto or everyone needs to follow low fat, high carb. I think the low fat, high carb subjectively is a little bit harder to stick to because the fat criteria is just so low that it's hard for people to stick to that. I've, I've just seen it. It's more difficult to do it in the long term as well. And you also want to find something that's sustainable for you and works for you. And it's not just something, you know, like you're going to jump to a diet for two weeks and then jump to something else. I really want to find something that works for somebody with their physiology, with their genetics, epigenetics, all these things that make us unique, but also something that they're not going to, you know, crash off of and have a rebound in the standard American diet. So that's the, the worst diet for everybody is the standard American diet. And I want to make sure that we're picking something that is sustainable as well. And, and I do kind of worry about that. I love your approach to all of this so much. Everything you said is exactly how I feel. I mean, it's, it's crazy how different we all are and how it is so individual and it bothers me that people try to often prescribe one diet to everybody. I keep saying if there was one diet that worked for everybody, I think we would have found it because I think we would all be doing it. There wouldn't be so much controversy in nutrition if we if there was one answer. There's not one cause of insulin resistance. There's not one solution. There's not one diet. I mean, we, we can all do better by eating more whole foods and avoiding anything processed. That's like obviously a good general rule of thumb. But beyond that, it is super, super individual. So speaking to the, the timeline of all of this, let's say a person actually is in a state of physiological insulin resistance and they want to bring back, bring back the carbs. 
does it vary by, by individuals as to how long it takes their body to make those changes or on the flip side, really, you know, switching between any type of macros, is it usually a few days, weeks, individual? It does vary. I would say as a general rule of thumb, it can be pretty quick. This has been studied in regards to like a failing and oral glucose tolerance test. So pregnant women, they have to take an oral glucose tolerance test to make sure they don't have gestational diabetes. And that's when this was first observed was people who were following a really low carbohydrate diet, they would fail these tests because all of a sudden you're having to drink 75 grams of pure glucose and your system hasn't seen glucose and you have this massive glucose response and you're labeled as gestational diabetic when really it's just physiological insulin resistance. So what they've shown, at least with, with these gestational diabetes false alarms, is about three days or so of eating 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrates per day is enough to make that effect go away. And then you can retest and the results come back normal. So for most people, if, if you're eating enough carbs, you know, you might see some higher responses in those couple of days. So if you want to avoid spikes at the same time, it might take longer because we'd have to kind of gradually work our way up there. But if you're okay with like three or four days of high numbers, cause you're really upping your, your carbs all of a sudden, it should reverse fairly quickly at that point. Actually, Rachel had a question about those tests. She said, can a glucose monitor be used during pregnancy to avoid the icky glucose drink? Could this be a better option for low carb moms? Can MDs petition insurance companies with this rationale? Yeah, we get this question a lot and I do find it really interesting because essentially like an oral glucose tolerance test, yeah, you're just having to drink this pure glucose and I'm not sure if you've ever had one, but it isn't very fun, especially if you're not normally consuming carbohydrates, but they're doing it to test, you know, your insulin sensitivity and that postprandial response to a big glucose load is actually extremely interesting. It tells us a lot about how your body can handle glucose. But I, I definitely understand that if you're not eating carbohydrates, you really don't want to do this test. And I think a CGM could be an alternative because we can see these nuances in your data and, and get an understanding of if it looks healthy or not. It would be whether we can convince official medical boards to accept this as like a, a diagnostic criteria. And I have a feeling that's going to be really hard to do because something like a, an OGTT, you take the test and we're looking at very specific things, you know, how high did your glucose go? What was it at two hours? It's, it's kind of easy for an MD to assess yes or no, abnormal, not abnormal, where if we just put a CGM on somebody and we're like, go live your normal life for two weeks and then we'll look at your results, that requires somebody to really specialize in, in interpreting and understanding like the daily nuances in CGM data. And I just have a feeling that that won't be part of like a standard diagnostic panel because uh, it just doesn't seem realistic. I think it would be a good idea. And there are some, we do have some people who have like, like a functional MD or a midwife and, and they're okay with using the CGM in replacement of this, but it's certainly not standard or recommended in like mainstream medicine. Do you have any idea why with the physiological insulin resistance that occurs on purpose during pregnancy, why some women it does reach dangerous levels and potentially can make them pre-diabetic or have issues with diabetes later. And some women are fine. Do you think it's just 
Do you think it's like a matter of just personal biology or diet during pregnancy? Or I just don't know if you have any, any thoughts on any of all of that. Yeah, that's a good question. Pregnancy, it does kind of put you in a state of mild insulin resistance where, you know, you're not as glucose tolerant as maybe when you weren't pregnant. But then there's, you know, the next level of showing signs of gestational diabetes, which would be even higher levels than just kind of baseline what pregnancy puts you in. And I think that that really comes out during pregnancy because you're kind of in this state of physiological insulin resistance. So it amplifies a problem you might have. Like if you're showing really mild signs of insulin resistance that cannot be detected on something like a fasting glucose or an A1C, because you're not seeing the nuances like you might see on a CGM data. And I think that just becomes amplified and much more clear when you're in this state of physiological insulin resistance during pregnancy. And so people who might be having, you know, issues before, or they might have a poor diet, but they kind of got away with it because their system was functioning a little bit more appropriately. When they become pregnant, they, they can't really get away with it anymore because we're just kind of in this, this altered state of glucose metabolism. Reading Dr. Bickman's book, he was saying that breastfeeding is actually one of the mechanisms that reverses the insulin resistance. I found that so fascinating. Do you know why? You know, I I don't know why. I haven't personally looked into that that much, but I do know that glucose levels, because we see a lot of moms postpartum and glucose levels dip during breastfeeding because it's kind of like a workout. You know, you're burning calories. Your body is in a high metabolic demand. So that's my hypothesis is that you're really just like burning extra calories, a higher basal metabolic rate. You know, it's kind of like you went out for a run or you went to the gym during that time. And if you're doing it every two hours all day long, it's like you're moving and you're active all day long, which we're not always in modern society. Gotcha. And we keep talking about HbA1c. Is it a half-life or, or is it just like a three-month reflection of cells? Yeah. So it's, it's a three-month reflection. So we were talking about like that glycation. So it's essentially saying like how much sugar is attached to your hemoglobin molecules. And the hemoglobin lasts for about 90 days, so three months. So it's telling you like on average, what have your average circulating glucose values been in the past three months? So if a person is standing here right now and they get it tested three months from now, so like if people make dietary changes in three months, you should be able to see a complete change. Like, cause in theory, then wouldn't you be able to drop from like the highest of high to like zero in three months? Theoretically, like your A1C will probably never go below like four. There's always kind of a baseline level of glucose in the system because we need glucose to live. Like our glucose is never zero. So if it was zero, that would, you probably wouldn't be alive. Okay. So <laughs> drop to four to four. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, theoretically, if you made like a very intense lifestyle changes, you should be able to see, you know, a drop if you rechecked it three months later, you know, at least some sort of decrease. And do you have thoughts about fructosamine? I've often heard that that's a, like a pretty telling thing that people don't often measure, but you could measure. I do. And I, and I have thoughts on A1C too. So with, yeah, with, with the hemoglobin A1C, you know, I, it's not my favorite test and it's really, I, I feel like it has been dubbed as kind of the 
the best test to see if like what your glucose is doing and if you're diabetic or not, but it has a lot of problems. I mean, one inherently is that it's, it's telling you your average glucose, which is useful. It's interesting to know how much, you know, glucose is circulating at all times, but it's missing the variability, which is actually more of a telling signal of how things are going. So it's not telling you, you know, if your glucose is spiking to 200 and crashing to 60 all day long, you know, or if your glucose is right at 120 all day, those two could be the same A1C because we're only taking the average. So I do think in that regard, it needs to be taken with a grain of salt, but also it tends to be pretty unreliable. It's again, it's making that assumption that a red blood cell, which has the hemoglobin lasts for 90 days, but there are a lot of situations and conditions that alter our red blood cell life. So anemia, which is very common, is going to alter how long your red blood cell lives. Even a low carb ketogenic diet alters your red blood cells, blood loss, smoking, vitamin B12 deficiency, all of these things alter your red blood cell and it can skew the result either a little bit higher or lower than true value. So this has been studied and it tends to only have on average about a 50% sensitivity. So only about 50% of the time is it truly matching with like your average glucose values when they're, they're measuring it with more sophisticated like clinical research measures. So for that reason, you know, if, if you come back right on the bubble, like if you're generally healthy and, you know, a normal A1C is considered below 5.7. So if your A1C is like 5.8%, that's technically pre-diabetes, but you do a lot of things right, then I'm going to take that with a grain of salt. And I want to see CGM data. I want to see all these other metrics that assess metabolic health, because it could just be, you know, a false negative. And it could just say like, you know, maybe you have anemia or maybe you're following a ketogenic diet. So what I think A1C is useful for is if it's majorly high. So if your A1C is 10%, there's no amount of anemia that's you know, correcting for that. So 10% is really, really high. That tells us something. But I also think it's really useful for tracking personal progress. So if your A1C was 8% last year and you retested it and now it's 6%, that, you know, is your personal progress. You can clearly see a downward trend. That is still a very useful insight, even if the absolute numbers may be skewed higher or lower. So I, I guess that's my caveat with A1C. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. 
Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So, as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time. That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E. 
with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Quick question about that. So I'm assuming with a low-carb diet, there's the potential that the blood cells would be living longer, so you might see higher HbA1c. For anemia, wouldn't they be dying sooner, so you might see a lower HbA1c when really... Exactly. So if a person had anemia, they might think their A1c is fine, but there actually might be problems because the blood cells are... That's exactly right, yeah. Man, okay. Yeah. So, so it could be, it can be, yeah, both directions where maybe you think your A1C is calling, you know, telling you you're pre-diabetic, but you're fine. Or it could, you could think, oh, I'm good to go, but it's actually in pre-diabetic levels. So yeah, it could be both directions depending on the situation. Wow. Yeah. So the fructosamine, what is that looking at? Yeah. So fructosamine is also looking at average glucose based off of like a glycated protein, but it's measuring it on albumin rather than hemoglobin. And that has a much shorter half-life. So it turns over in two weeks. So fructosamine is instead telling you what your average glucose values were in the last two weeks. So this is really helpful Traditionally, it's only used if you're making like medication adjustments for like diabetics type one or type two. Like if you make an adjustment in insulin dosage and then two weeks later, you can test it with a fructosamine rather than having to wait three months to make a medication adjustment. So that's the standard use case. But essentially, it's telling us in a much shorter time how things are changing And it's more reliable because it is measuring albumin, not the red blood cells. So if you do have abnormal red blood cell length, 
then fructosamine is a more reliable choice and you won't get as many like false highs or false lows. Albumin can also vary. So it is usually low with things like, like renal issues or hepatic issues. So not something like, you know, maybe the biohacker crowd has to be too worried about, but there are instances where albumin can also be kind of falsely low. Chronic inflammation in general can lower albumin. Does dietary protein affect that at all? It doesn't. Yeah. So we used to think that it did. Like when people came back with a low albumin, we used to like amp up their protein in the hospitals, but no, it's more reflective of kind of like inflammation and and what's going on with like different organ systems rather than any dietary reflection. I love this so much. I got a lot of questions about a pattern, which this was actually a pattern I was anticipating before I ever put on the CGM. I was like, I'm calling it. I was like, I think I'm going to see in myself like higher blood sugar levels while fasting. And then I feel like when I eat, it's probably going to go down. Um, like maybe like a reactive hypoglycemia or a reverse pattern. Mercedes says what to look out for if I'm reactive hypoglycemic. Sharon, she says, I've been using one for two weeks and I found that my glucose goes down sharply to 65 when I eat and crashes at points when I'm sleeping. To make things crazier, it runs high, not out of range, 105 to 116 when I fast. Could you ask what it means when you seem to be the opposite and plunge downward after eating and up when fasted? Is that a common pattern for people? Yeah. So there are two different categories of hypoglycemia. So there can be reactive or functional, which is typically after a meal. And then we can have kind of like fasting hypoglycemia, which just usually occurs when you're sleeping. So the most common cause of reactive hypoglycemia is usually if you're consuming like a really refined carbohydrates or sugar. So this is the most typical scenario where somebody eats, you know, who knows what, maybe a soda and you pump out a bunch of insulin to kind of correct that high glucose and your body basically like overestimates how much insulin it needs. So you release a bunch of insulin and then your blood sugar crashes because of that huge insulin dump. And then your body tries to bring it back up. And then you have this like fluctuating glucose levels as your body tries to fix what's going on. And this can feel really, really awful for a lot of people. So if this is going on, we really want to monitor what type of carbohydrates you're choosing and how many you're eating at any given point in time because this is definitely a problem. And this is a really, really early sign of a potential problem. Like if you eat, you know, something kind of minor, like maybe a plain sweet potato and your glucose spikes, but then crashes hard and you feel those feelings of like dizziness, nausea, anxiety, sweating, mood swings, that might be a sign that, you know, your body is putting out too much insulin every time you're eating. And we kind of want to work on that. So that's the most common reason. I will say that some people, especially people following a ketogenic diet or really low carb diet, their glucose might decrease after meals, but it's not this huge spike and drop. It is just kind of like maybe you started at 110 when you ate the meal and your glucose went to 90 and it's you decrease, but you're not getting to a level where you're feeling hypoglycemic. So you're not having those symptoms and that's normal. A lot of times, especially kind of if you're stimulating ketones or if you're eating a lot of protein, you might be also stimulating a little glucagon with that. Your glucose can decrease a little. So that is not hypoglycemia. That might just be, you know, a small glucose decrease after a meal. 
other causes, potential causes of hypoglycemia, especially reactive hypoglycemia, is if you're somebody who maybe has hypocortisolism. So lack of glucocorticoids from the adrenal glands can increase glucose oxidation and decrease gluconeogenesis. So people who have maybe, you know, I guess it's a little debated, but what I would call, I guess, like cortisol issues, if you're having a lot of stress, we see some reactive hypoglycemia for this reason. And same with if you're having maybe thyroid issues, so like hypothyroidism can also cause hypoglycemia. So these are two like medical conditions we want to check for. And if you have either of those, then you know, that's a medical problem. You kind of need to take to your doctor and the side effect of that is potential hypoglycemia. So once we fix that, we can fix the hypoglycemia. So there could be a lot of things going on. Also, many medications can make people hypoglycemic in the middle of the night. So we also want to know what they might be taking. So for some people, some very common antibiotics can cause hypoglycemia, ACE inhibitors, like bile acids, sequestrants, beta blockers, some pretty common medications. Of course, diabetic medications, but these can also cause hypoglycemia. Also, if you're consuming alcohol at meals or on its own, this can cause hypoglycemia for a lot of people, especially the nocturnal hypoglycemia. And essentially, you know, the alcohol is kind of interfering with the glucose homeostasis because the liver is prioritizing alcohol detoxification. So if, and some people see this affect more intensely than others do. So this is something else where, you know, I have had clients where just one glass of wine at night causes them to dip in the middle of the night. So not everybody sees this, but that's something else we might want to look for in these scenarios. What you're talking about with people who are stressed, the cortisol issues, does the situation look like, does their blood glucose raise from the stress and then the response is it drops? So it's like a reactive hypoglycemia to themselves. Yeah. So a lot of times we're seeing it, we can see in both scenarios with, with that issue of it could be the fasting hypoglycemia or the reactive. Reactive is often associated with the content of your meal itself and potentially this problem of excreting too much insulin. But sometimes we see it where, you know, we've, we've looked at the meals, the meals look good. It doesn't seem to be what's going on. And it's actually a cortisol issue that's interfering with metabolism. And so that can be kind of a whole, whole separate problem that then we probably have to address that, bring that data to your doctor and kind of talk that through. But that has happened many times. So it's in the context of eating, not the fasting, or it does happen in the fasting as well. Yeah, it can happen in either. Okay, that's fascinating. I have a super random question. This is so random. Do you think, because a lot of people, me and my audience, often have digestive distress and will use things like digestive enzymes. Have you seen anything where, you know, using too many digestive enzymes sort of could make your food potentially more refined or processed in a way so it have a bigger effect on your blood sugar? Like if people are eating fruit and they're taking a lot of digestive enzymes with it, would that potentially make it more 
sugary than no I see what you're saying I'm not sure this would be something I'd be very curious to have somebody try out so if you want to like you know do a little n of one experiment I would be super interested if you see different responses if you take it with a, a lot of enzymes versus maybe none or a small amount I mean theoretically you know you could be essentially processing the food more so we do definitely see different glucose responses depending on how processed the food is so example of whole fruit versus juice or steel cut oats versus instant oats, the effects are pretty dramatic in glucose responses to just the form the food is in. So I think in theory, it could potentially have a higher glucose response if you're making it like essentially more refined, but I'm not sure if it would actually play out that way or not. It it might not. I, I haven't had anyone tell me that or notice that if it is. (laughs) These are the things I think about. I mean, I've definitely noticed not to go into like TMI territory, but a very definite change in stool consistency with enzymes. And it, to me, that says, well, there's, you know, a lot more processing going on in one situation and not the other. So I've just been thinking about that. So another timeline question, the Freestyle Libre and NutriSense, it's a two week period. Like we've been saying, I got a lot of questions about what you can learn in those two weeks and, you know, how long you need to be using one. So Margaret said, is two weeks really long enough to get a clear picture of your glucose levels and how different foods or activities affect your glucose levels is a month better Andy says, is a two-week monitoring period a, a good enough snapshot? Would you recommend varying eating patterns, diet, sleep, exercise, and alcohol consumption while wearing a monitor? I've been getting, because I we haven't aired this episode yet, obviously, but I have you know, been teasing it and given the code in my Facebook group to my audience. And I'm getting so many questions about, you know, should I do a two week trial? Should I go ahead and do a month? Should I do a year? Cause you guys do offer a lot of different plans for that. So people with those questions, what, what do you recommend? Oh, and do you wear one 24 seven? I don't wear one 24 seven anymore. I would say like for me, the first I, like I did like three months of kind of like back to back wearing and an experimentation as much as possible. And now like my sweet spot after that is wearing one, like maybe every like six weeks. So I did this like back to back of kind of a few months to just like learn as much as possible. And then I like to check it in to kind of like tweak, or if I have an experiment I want to try or to like, just keep myself accountable. One of the amazing benefits of these devices is it really drives behavior change. So if you're ha- somebody that has a hard time, like kind of sticking to your plan or sticking to the things, you know, you know, you should do, but they're kind of hard to do. Sometimes having that real time data is super helpful to like, just motivate you to do the certain things. Like you don't forget that that data is there. So I find it super helpful to just kind of check in and get myself back on track if I need that. So that's, that's my personal usage. So there's like a two week trial. What are the different tiers? And then is it three months, six months a year? So essentially what we offer is we have the two week trial, which is just one CGM, you know, you get the app and the dietitian, you get everything, but there's no commitment. You know, you don't have to do anything else after that. And I think the two week plan is a really great option if, you know, you're not sure if you're going to like it or not. So it's basically, you know, if you're afraid of committing, but you think you might want to do it longer, you could start with the two week and then, you know, no harm, no foul if you just didn't really like wearing it or you felt like you got enough information from it. So it's a good place to start if you're not sure. It's also a good place if you are pretty routine driven. So let's say, you know, you're 
follow a ketogenic diet, you like what you're doing and you just kind of want to see like, where are my glucose levels at? Like, is everything good? Like just to check in two weeks is enough time. Whereas like, let's say you're trying different diets. You're like, I kind of want to see if keto works or I kind of want to see if a higher carb works or I want to try different fasting regimens. Like that's going to take longer than two weeks if you have a bunch of things you want to try out and experiment with. So I think it depends on your goal. You know, if you have bigger goals as well, where it's like you maybe really want to lose weight or you want to get your glucose values down, maybe you already know they're in pre-diabetic levels or, you know, you have these bigger picture goals. It, It takes more than two weeks to realistically make progress on those things. So we do offer monthly options as well. We have a month to month, again, for the commitment phobic people out there where you could cancel at any time. And obviously it's a little bit more expensive because you're, you're not committing at all, but that's an option. If you thought maybe I want to do a month and then you could switch plans if you, if you feel like you like it. And then we have three months, six months, 12 months, and it just keeps getting cheaper the longer you commit. So for the longer plans, like if you know, like I have 30 pounds I want to lose, or I'm pre-diabetic, or I know I want to try like a couple different diets and experiment. I think three months is a good option listeners. So speaking from my experience, because I didn't know what to expect going into all of this, I feel like if you're the type of person where this content is really resonating with you and you want to explore and learn and are anticipating making dietary changes, I feel like most of you guys will probably, the two weeks will go by and you'll be like, I want it to go a little bit longer. If you, you know, are like she said, just doing a checkup, see where things are, the two weeks would, would completely work. For me, I think I probably will do it I don't know, I'm anticipating probably about three months or so and then do like the checkups. And I can say this again later, but we do have a discount for you listeners, which I'm so grateful for. So if you go to melanieavalon.com slash CGM, you can use the coupon code melanieavalon and that will get you 15% off everything except not the, not the two-week one, but everything else it should apply for. So thank you so much for that, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing I will note too, if you do our monthly plans, you can pause your plan if you ever want to. So if you want to take like a month or two month break, you can pause. So it's flexible if, if you need to kind of spread maybe a couple months out over some time. Is that on a different page? I didn't see that. I need to find the link to that because um, I didn't realize that was an option. I think I just saw the page for three, six. Yeah. And and it's basically like, if you sign up for any of those, you can just send us a message and say like, oh, I want to pause my account and we can pause it for a certain amount of time and just kind of like work with you on what's best. So I can send you information on that, but it is like flexible. If if anyone ever wants to take a break, we can definitely do that. Awesome. And then the actual NutriSense app itself. So got a lot of questions about, you know, interpreting the data. Because a lot of people in my group actually said they did have access to a freestyle Libra through their doctor and they wanted to know, you know, what was the difference of having the NutriSense app? And then Sue, for example, says, can she get a how to interpret readings? Dorita says, what do you do with the data? Can an average person interpret the data? Ingrid says, how to interpret results to figure out what works for the individual and which foods don't work. So, so the actual NutriSense, so to clarify for listeners, the Freestyle Libra is the actual CGM device. NutriSense is the company, the app that is providing the prescription, the access to the CGM, and then their app syncs with your device and has a ton of information that you can learn about yourself. So w- using the app, what what will listeners learn? How does it work? How does it work with the, the coaching or the communicating with the nutritionist? So what's going on? 
There's two components. You know, if you were just to get the Freestyle Libre from your doctor and use the app that comes with it, there's two things that really differentiate our product that we're trying to fill the gaps that currently exist. And one is build an app that is geared towards the non-diabetic and the person who wants to understand their data. So if you use the Libre app or the Dexcom app, they're built for diabetics. So it basically tells you your glucose values and it tells you, you know, has you enter how much insulin you're taking so that you can kind of manage your glucose with medications. And, and that's about it. So we're trying to build an app that helps the person who doesn't necessarily have diabetes and is really focused on these other goals make use of this data. So we have, of course, like statistics and charts to help you understand your data, but we also have a food tracker so you can see, you know, match what you're eating against your glucose. And we have integration with other metrics so you can utilize and and monitor your ketones against your glucose. And that's one of our big picture goals down the road is to keep integrating with other data that give you a good holistic view of your metabolic health. So ketones and, you know, direct to consumer labs that you can order from the app and then the information is there. So integrations like that, you know, with Aura Ring and all these other trackers. But the real differentiator, I think, is the dietitian support. So course, I'm a little biased because I am a dietitian, but we, we provide a, a one-on-one dietitian for each customer. And we do this for multiple reasons. One is because as it was probably made clear today, glucose can be confusing and can be nuanced. Like there are many reasons your glucose might increase or decrease. And a lot of questions come up and we want to make sure that you're getting the most out of the information and that you're actually able to reach your health goals. We don't want to just sell you a product because it sounds interesting. We actually want you to be able to improve and, and optimize your life. And sometimes a human touch is needed for that. So we have a trained dietitian who can work with you that are all trained and, and understanding glucose values, optimizing metabolic health. And they're there to help answer your questions, but also help point out things in your data so you understand it. Suggest experiments based off of your individual goals and really help provide that personalized experience. Because at the end of the day, you know, we truly believe there's not one size fits all and everyone's unique. And so you need a human there to kind of help you find the right thing for you. So the dietitian is included for everybody because a lot of people think they don't want a dietitian because they think a dietitian is going to put them on a diet, (laughs) but that's not what our dietitians are there for. You know, they're there to really make you a glucose expert and to totally understand and optimize your data and also help you reach, you know, whatever your unique health goal is. So it's very personalized and it's basically like kind of like texting for the customer. So it's all happens through the the in-app chat. So it's right there in the app that you can send a message at any time you're confused and you're always getting feedback from that coach. Yeah, I will say I was ridiculously impressed (laughs) with that aspect of it. And I as well did not anticipate, like you said, a lot of people think, oh, I don't, I don't need to talk to a dietitian, but the communication has just been so, I mean, 
I don't know if I can say names. I've been talking with Carly and she's just been <laughs> amazing and has, you know, answered all my questions. And it's really nice to, to have somebody there. But at the same time, she's also said, you know, if you'd prefer not to have, you know, be communicating or us looking it over, just let me know. And so it's, it's really what you want to make of it. So it's been really, really valuable. Annette wants to know, do you ship overseas? Right now, we only ship to the U.S. and Canada, but we do have many people in other countries who are using our app and dietitian, but they're getting the sensors over the counter. So we have a lot of people in Europe where, you know, they can just walk to their local pharmacy and get the Libre device. And then maybe they've tried it on their own and they needed help understanding the data or they wanted a better app. And so they ended up reaching out to us. And so now we offer that as, as an option for our international customers. If they're able to get the Libre or if you have a Dexcom and you have an iPhone, we also are compatible with the Dexcom. So if you can get your own sensor, then you can definitely use our app and, and use our dietitians. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause Miranda, she says, well, they have a software only package for those of us already using a CGM. So is that on the website or do they need to contact? It's not on the website at this point because it's something that people have just been kind of reaching out to us about. And so we're starting to do, but it's not one of our like official plans at this point in time. But so you can just send us a message. We have like a chat bot on our website and somebody will be able to kind of send you pricing and set you up with that. So we can have an option where if you're just using our app or if you want to use the app and the dietitian. We can definitely do both of those. Okay, awesome. Do you know much about the the EMF exposure of wearing a CGM? I know that's a big concern. This has been very lightly studied. I will say the research is not in depth, but it has shown that it's essentially minimal to none because we're actually using the NFC. So like near field communication in your phone. So this is like the little, it's a chip in your phone that reads when you do like Apple pay or Google pay, that's how that works. And so that's what you're using to scan the device. Whereas something like Dexcom, or there's a different version of the Libre that uses Bluetooth and that has a higher EMF output because it's using Bluetooth and it's constantly pulling signals from the device. So that's that's one benefit. It's, it's a double-edged sword where you have to manually scan the device rather than Bluetooth just automatically syncing it, but it has lower EMF. So I think it's kind of a win. Actually, do you think in the future, they'll probably all move towards Bluetooth? Probably. Yeah, it's probably inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea, but I'm assuming yes. Yeah. I will say one thing I learned for listeners is if you put your phone into airplane mode in the middle of the night using the app, and this might be a, a fix that will be updated when this comes out, but it'll scan, but it doesn't actually scan. So if you are, because I didn't say this yet on the show, we didn't say this yet, but you do have to scan it. If you want 24 hours of data, you have to scan it at least every eight hours. So if for whatever reason you're waking up in the middle of the night, listeners, you have briefly turn your phone off of airplane mode to scan it. I, I had like about three days where I was like, I don't think it's getting any of my data at night. And then we figured out it was because of the airplane mode. It would make, it would like vibrate like it had scanned. So I just assumed it was scanning, but alas, it was not. But okay, this has been absolutely amazing. I just want to thank you so much for all that you're doing. Literally, this is my new obsession, CGMs and everything that you're doing with this company, making it available to everybody is just so valuable. Listeners, I cannot recommend enough at the very least, you know, doing a two week trial and just getting a clear picture of, of everything. What are you most excited about with the future of this company? 
That's a good question. I'm really excited about the other integration. So I think glucose is so interesting and so important, but we really do want to eventually be a company that's really kind of looking at a holistic view of your metabolic health. And right now, you know, if anybody has labs, they can send it to us and we can kind of take that into account and it gives us a better view of what's going on. But eventually we want you to be able to upload the labs you have into the app and it's very organized and tells you a lot of information and tracks it and gives you trends, not just on glucose, but these other metrics that are so important because really our ultimate goal is to just make you the healthiest version of yourself. And so we, we do want to incorporate other wearables, other integrations, lab data so that we can get this well-rounded 360 view. So that's what I'm excited about. I love that. And do you know, I've heard that, do you know if there's a future of something that doesn't even go in your skin? Yeah, there definitely have been testing out all types of devices. So it will be interesting to see where the, where the actual hardware goes. And I do think they're also going to just keep getting cheaper and cheaper because there's so much more interest in this. So that's also exciting that I'm looking forward to. But yeah, th- there is some companies kind of trying to develop something where maybe it measures it more off your like sweat or the surface of your skin. So it's not actually inserted anywhere. And then there's also companies kind of going the opposite direction where it's actually like surgically implanted, but it would like last longer. It'd be like three months of data as opposed to two weeks. So I'm sure we'll see all types of things coming up, which will be super interesting. Awesome. So many exciting things. Well, the very last question that I ask every single guest on this podcast comes from my growing realization each and every day, just how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, I love that question. I I feel like it sounds cheesy, but the first thing that comes to my mind is I'm just definitely grateful for our customers. Um, I think coming from, you know, you usually you get into healthcare because you want to help people and then working in the hospital where everyone's kind of like sick and sad, it's, it's, it's just kind of frustrating. And every day I get to work with people who are so excited to be their best version of themselves. And it's so inspiring. Like sometimes people have more work to be done than others, but the level of like motivation and invigoration that our customers have to just be optimal and take it to the next level is really inspiring. Like I'm, I'm very excited about the wave that, you know, we're having with health and people caring about their bodies and caring about what they're putting in it. I'm, I'm grateful to work with those types of customers every day. I love that so much. It's so wonderful when people are doing such amazing things like this and then, you know, loving what you're doing, loving the people you're working with, and it's having, you know, massive effects on people's health and vitality. So I cannot thank you enough listeners. So these show notes for today's episode, there will be a full transcript and we'll put links to everything that will be at melanieavalon.com slash NutriSense. And then, like I said, for a discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash CGM and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 15% off. Any other links, resources, Kara, that you'd like to put out there for how can listeners best follow your work? Yeah, so um, our... Instagram account through NutriSense, we're definitely putting out like any interesting research or things we're learning is kind of going through there. Of course, our website, we're also putting out blogs. So many of the NutriSense accounts are the best way to kind of see my voice through that. I would say I don't do a great job of keeping up with my own social media. It's hard when you're also trying to, you know, build a company, but a lot of my thoughts and things I'm interested in are coming out through the NutriSense accounts. 
Awesome. I love it so much. So I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And this has been absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And hopefully we can stay in touch and talk again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.